do you want to know God? How would you go about that? How do you come to a true knowledge of God? I think many people today find that a very confusing idea, especially when you listen to the so-called experts. Now take, for example, Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury and theologian. Um, in 1994, he published a book of talks and sermons, and in one, he likened God to a spastic child. This is what he said. This is the solitude of truth, the solitude finally of God. God as a spastic child who can communicate nothing but his presence and his inarticulate wanting. Now, Rowan doesn't seem to have a lot of confidence in God's ability to reveal himself to us, to communicate clearly to us. Now, compare that with the view of God that we find in the Bible, and in particular to what Mark records in his biography of Jesus that was read to us earlier in the online service. Two remarkable miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. And the first thing I want to affirm this morning is that these events are recorded as eyewitnessed history. Now, of course, some people don't take these accounts on face value. When people are committed to the principle that miraculous events cannot happen, they've tried ingenious ways to explain that these were actually ordinary events that were mistaken as miracles. Um, some have seen the feeding of um, the feeding miracle as a kind of a great lesson in sharing. You know, everyone had actually come with their sandwiches, but they were hiding, keep them to themselves. And so when one little boy shares his loaves and fish, everyone is spurred on by his generosity and they start to share their food. Another theologian argued that Jesus shared a tiny crumb of bread with each of the 5,000 people. And for that, you'd have to completely ignore the verses that say they all ate and were satisfied. And at the end, they picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Now, if this was the case, that this was just ordinary, then why on earth would all the four gospel accounts record this incredible event and make such a big deal about it? And of course, the same scholars have also tried to explain away the walking on the water as Jesus walking out on a, on a sandback or it was a, an optical illusion. He was walking along the shore and it appeared he was walking on the water. The British magician Paul Daniels uh, once claimed that he could easily pull off a stunt like this in a theatre environment to make it look like he was walking on water. But of course the real test would have been to take Paul Daniels in a helicopter over the English Channel, halfway between England and France, lower him on the waves in a storm and tell him to walk home. Now I think the only reason that we're talking about these events 2,000 years later is because these remarkable things actually happened. But what we need to understand today is this. What does it mean that these events took place? What is their significance? Now take a look at a very surprising phrase in verse 51. A very surprising statement. Remember the disciples have just, um, just seen Jesus walking on water which terrifies them. But look at the reason why they're terrified according to Mark. Verse 51, then he climbed into the boat with them and uh, the wind died down and they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves their hearts were hardened. Now what's the clear inference? If they'd understood about the feeding miracle, then they should have been less surprised about Jesus walking on water. These two events are linked moments of revelation. This revealed something big about Jesus. And if we're going to understand um, 
And if we understand what this reveals about Jesus, I think this has the power to totally transform our lives today as well. So what was it that they were supposed to get? Well, two main points this morning. The first thing is to see that Jesus is God's promised shepherd king. Uh, the disciples return from a missions trip, which looks like it had been quite a success because crowds of people seem to have returned with them and things are a bit hectic. They can't have eaten properly. And so Jesus shows his care for them in verse 31. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Now notice the, the one who commissioned them to go and preach now commands them to rest. We all need a proper rhythm of work and rest. We need seasons of busyness and times of recuperation. And holidays and rest are a blessing to receive uh, without guilt. Everyone needs time off, even pastors. And I'm really looking forward to a couple of weeks off next week. And so you can easily imagine the disappointment of the disciples when um, after a little trip on the boat, they discover another large crowd awaiting them. But look at Jesus' reaction to the crowds in verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now that last phrase is echoed many times in the Old Testament scriptures. When Moses, the greatest leader of ancient Israel, is told that he soon will die, he makes a request to God in, in Numbers chapter 27. May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in so that the Lord's people will not be like a sheep without a shepherd. Moses knows that God's people need a leader. And it's no surprise that when Israel started having kings, they were referred to as shepherds of God's people. And so when Jesus sees the crowd, his heart moves out to them in pity. He sees a crowd of lost people that lack godly leadership. Now, if you listen to the last talk on Mark, you can see what an amazing contrast Mark has painted between two kings, King Herod and King Jesus. And Mark has put side by side two feasts and two very contrasting kings. King Herod, well, well he represents the sort of leadership that unfortunately we're sadly used to in the world. He throws a feast in his palace for his, the great ones and all his cronies. He's someone who leads for his own advantage, someone who is caught up in his own ego and reputation. He's a sensual king. He's trapped by his own weaknesses for wine and women. He's someone who rejects those who preach God's word and does little good for his people. Then in sharp contrast, we have King Jesus. Yeah, here is someone who has genuine compassion for the crowds of ordinary people. He throws a feast for them in the great outdoors and he shows true leadership by teaching them God's word. Verse 34, and so he began to teach them many things. So what is the real significance of this feeding miracle? It's clearly something bigger than teaching us how to do successful church picnics. Well, there are a number of clues in, that Mark gives us to help us understand its significance. Clue number one, this repeated idea about the location. Uh, Jesus says to them in verse 31, let's go to a quiet place. In verse 32, they went away to a solitary place. And in verse 35, his disciples described that they are in a remote place. Now, in the original Greek language that this is written in, that is exactly the same word in all three instances. And it could be just translated simply a desert, a deserted place. 
Clue number two. In that desert place, we find thousands of people being seated in groups of hundreds and fifties. Over 5,000 men, so the crowd probably was bigger than that with women and children. Clue three. They, were, they had insufficient food. All they have is one person's packed lunch, five loaves and a couple of fish. Yet amazingly, they are all fed with miraculous bread. Does that remind you of anything? Well, you've had any, if you've had any Sunday school background, of course, this reminds you of one of the great moments in the history of Israel that took place at the time of Exodus. The Israelite slaves were freed out of slavery in Egypt. They were redeemed by God by a, a great act of salvation. He brought them out of slavery under Pharaoh to become his special people. And God sustained them in the desert for 40 years with miraculous bread called manna. This is one of the great moments where God revealed himself to his people as their redeemer God. The one who saw them in their terrible need and, and rescued them and provided for them as their God. God's name and character were forever revealed to Israel in the amazing events of history of the Exodus. The God of the Bible, unlike the portrayal of the former Archbishop, is a clear communicator, a powerful saviour and a sustaining redeemer. God provided the manna in their wilderness wanderings. And here from the hands of Jesus, the people are miraculously fed. Now recall what was read earlier from the prophecy of Isaiah in chapter 49. Uh, that, this comes much later in Israel's history when they were once more out of the promised land. They were exiled because of their sinful disobedience. But God graciously made an amazing promise 700 years before Jesus came. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favour, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances, uh, to say to the captive, come out and to those in darkness, be free. They will feed beside the roads and find pastures on every barren hill. They will neither hunger nor thirst nor will the desert heat or the sun beat down on them. He who has compassion on them will guide them and lead them beside springs of water. God promised that he would send a servant who would be a rescuer, who would restore the exiles back to their land. There would be like a second exodus where he would free them from their slavery and provide for them on the desert journey home. And then God declares at the end of that prophecy in Isaiah 49, Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Saviour, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Well, this is what the disciples should have understood by the loaves. This feeding miracle was a signpost to the identity of Jesus, a signpost that this is God's promised shepherd king, a signpost that this is the Redeemer of his people. God has come to redeem his people. Our spiritual exile, separated from God by our sin, would be dealt with by Jesus. In a year or so from this moment, this miraculous bread sharing, Jesus would take another loaf of bread, bless it, break it, and hand it out to his disciples saying, This is my body broken for you. It's his death upon the cross that is the act of redemption that provides our pardon. This is the amazing provision of God that he has sent a redeemer, the true shepherd, king of our souls, who pays for our sins 
and satisfies our souls. Look at verse 42, they all ate and were satisfied. Here in picture form is the abundance of God's grace and provision in the disciples. If the disciples had understood the significance of the loaves, then they would not have been so astounded by the way that Jesus is able to walk on water. For recall the time of Exodus, when the people of Israel walked across the Red Sea without getting their feet wet. Now, before we look at the second miracle, let's stop to think about what this passage has to say to us who are Christian disciples. I think it's fascinating that after they have gone on a mission for Jesus and seen people healed and evil spirits cast out, then Jesus pushes them their faith further with the command in verse 37, you give them something to eat. Well, the disciples looked out at this massive crowd of thousands and quickly got overwhelmed. That would take more than half a year's wages. I mean, they can't do this. And Jesus pushed them further to not only see the overwhelming task, but to see their insufficient resources. How many loaves do you have? He said, go and see. Well, after a bit of a search, they, they come back with five loaves and two fish. And there's at least 5,000 people out there. Now, why is Jesus doing this? Surely it is to show us, uh, to show them and to show us both their insufficiency, but to teach them to depend, to, to depend on his total sufficiency. What they are unable to do, he uniquely can do. And it's fascinating that Jesus did choose to feed this crowd with such a small meal. God chose to multiply the little that was offered. And I just think that's so encouraging. Um, we often feel so inadequate. I do as a disciple. And I often think to myself, if only I were more clever or more gifted. Um, uh, you know, I, I often can feel quite useless, to be honest. But God must delight in using ordinary people with ordinary gifts because he made so many of us. And so the question is, are we willing to put the little that we have at his disposal? For the truth is that through ordinary but willing people, God still spreads the bread of life out into the world today. Jesus actually chooses to minister to the crowd through his disciples. They find the bread and fish. They settle the crowds into groups. They distribute the multiplied bread and fish to the crowd. They pick up the leftovers. And the people get blessed. And Jesus rightly gets all the glory. The disciples are in no doubt where all this stuff came from. Do you see, it's not about us. It's not about us as disciples. It's not our abilities. It's not our resources. It's about Jesus, who uniquely is the shepherd king, our redeemer God. But let's also consider what the second miracle tells us about Jesus. Jesus is the redeemer God come to rescue his people. Uh, immediately, it says in verse 45, he pushes uh, the disciples into the boat uh, to go on ahead of him and he dismisses the crowd. Now, it seems a bit strange, but perhaps he's trying to deal with all the messianic hype. In John's gospel, it says that they were ready to make him king once he fed them. But instead of marching Jerusalem with a ragtag army, he dismisses them and uh, sends his disciples away. And instead of going into the boat himself, he goes up to a mountain to pray. Now, this text is crystal clear that in the middle of the night, Jesus came out towards them walking on the water. An astonishing thought. But look at the strange phrase in verse 48. He was about to pass by them. And that sounds odd. Like, was he trying to get ahead of them? Well, what does it mean? 
Well, the Old Testament scriptures provides the, the background and the answer. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses is up the Sinai mountain. He's praying when he asks to see God's glory. And God tells him, well, you can't see my full glory be too much, but I'll hide you in a crevice of a rock where I will cause my glory to pass by. And in 1 Kings 19, Elijah is told to leave a cave and witness a revelation of God's glory passing by. And what is happening on the lake as Jesus comes out to help them and means to pass by is it's a way of saying he is passing on a revelation of his glory. For who else can walk upon the water but God himself? The, the Bible is, is not just a book of facts. It's, it actually interprets them for us. The, the works of God in the Bible always have attached some of the words of God so that we can understand them. And the disciples are terrified, but Jesus calls out to them in verse 50, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Now, our English translation obscures what a major declaration this is. Because in the original language, the middle statement is simply two words. I am. I am. This is God's personal name that he revealed to Moses before the exodus at the burning bush. It is not hard to know God, for God has revealed himself in Jesus. I mean, does it get any clearer than this? Jesus is walking on water and he says, take courage, don't be afraid. I am. I am God. The two great moments of the Exodus where God came to redeem his people, bringing them through the Red Sea and feeding them in the desert. Well, here is Jesus doing very similar things in fulfillment of God's ancient promises. If we want to know God, then we need to come to know Jesus. And of course, if we ignore God, if we ignore Jesus, then we are ignoring God. Do you see how much God has done to make himself known? Do you see how amazing is the love of God for us to send his son to be our rescuer from sin and death? We are the lost sheep who need to have Jesus as our shepherd king. And have you responded to him yet? Have you repented of living for yourself and, and put your trust in him as your savior and king? No, my friends, the redeemer is clearly revealed, the redeeming God. But how does it go down? Well, Clearly, the revelation is not understood. In verses 53 to 56, as the, the boat lands on the other side of the lake, the crowds appear again, but they only seem to be interested in a healer. And the big shock is to see what is said about the disciples in verse 52. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. Hardness of heart is the biblical phrase used of Pharaoh who enslaved the people and opposed God. Hardness of heart was the description of the religious leaders who were plotting to kill Jesus. But yet here it is a description of his own disciples. You see, the problem of communication is not on God's side. The problem is on the receiving end. Our problem is that we start with hard hearts that fail to perceive or, or, or fail to accept the clear revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Scriptures record the events of history. God has spoken. He's made promises. God has fulfilled his promises. He promised a redeemer and a redeemer came, his only son. It's, hard. it's harder to get clearer than this, isn't it? Feeding thousands of people with a few loaves of bread, walking on water. What more does God have to do to get our attention? 
Our problem is this, it is our sinful, rebellious hearts. And the truth is we need God to do a miracle to open our eyes, to unstop our ears and give us brand new hearts. And he alone can do that. And if you've not done so already, call upon him to do this for you. Repent and believe the good news. But a closing word to disciples. I mean, if, if you're in the middle of great trials right now, meditate on verse 48. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Why are they out there in the middle of the night struggling so hard? Because Jesus sent them across. It was their obedience that made life so uncomfortable for them. And even as, even as Jesus is in prayer, his eyes were still upon them and he sees their pain and their struggle. And it's true for now. Jesus sees all our pain and he cares for us. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. We have a great high priest who sees us in our struggles and who is interceding for us, even now, the Bible says. And it was in the darkness of that stormy night that he chose to reveal his amazing glory to his disciples. And in the most extraordinary way, he encouraged them, take courage. I am. Do not be afraid.